Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, coming in from Columbus, Ohio. And today I'm going to continue my coverage on the kaiju genre of films. So, last time we went through the Godzilla Showa era timeline, kind of film by film, and I'm going to be doing things a little bit different this time. First of all, we're taking a break from Godzilla, and we'll finish up the rest of the Godzilla series on episode 3 of this chapter. But for this episode, I'm going to be looking into the Daie Film Studio, and going into its background, and how it was founded, and changes it went through, and why is Daie important? Well, they did a number of big-name horror movies and monster movies, so namely among those being the Gamera series and the Daimajin trilogy, the Yokai Monster trilogy, Ugetsu. They also did some stuff with Akira Kurosawa. So a pretty big deal of a studio. I wanted to go into their background because, one, I find it fascinating, and it gives you a little insight on the background of the Japanese film industry. And two, because I'm going to be talking about the Showa-era Gamera films and also the Daimajin trilogy. Now, I will get to some of their other horror stuff in a later series, I'm sure, but those are the ones I want to focus on today. And the reason I'm focusing on Gamera Showa is because there's actually going to be a crossover-type episode coming up soon where I jump on to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, which is hosted by Bill Van Vegel and Nathan Bartlebaugh, and talk about the Gamera Heisei-era films. So I'm not sure when we'll get together and put that out, but that's the reason why I'm focusing on the Showa era. Now, I will go into the history of Daie till the end, but, I mean, there's not really a crossover there between what I'm going to be talking about. So that's the plan. We will see how everything goes. And without further ado, if you would turn your books to Chapter 6, Page 2, we'll begin. Okay, Daie Film. How did it come to be? Well, it's a very interesting story. I think among, you know, how studios are formed, it's pretty interesting because you have to think about the history that goes on in Japan around the time the studio was coming to be. So where do we begin? Well, let's start in World War II era Japan. There was a plan set in place by the government to reorganize film production companies into just two studios to gain more control over them. Initially, the government was going to take the 10 major Japanese studios and, again, just take two of those and keep them around so they could keep a handle on what was being shown, control the propaganda, everything like that. Typical World War II stuff from what we've seen across the globe. In those days, film stock was considered a war asset, and you essentially had to make the kind of films that the government wanted you to make if you wanted a supply of film stock. So there are pretty high stakes here to be able to make something um, and to make any kind of art, which is why, you know, the Japanese film industry wouldn't hit its... Well, I mean, there's a couple reasons there, but it's one of the reasons why it wouldn't hit its stride until, you know, later in the 50s. Masaichi Nagata was outspoken in his opposition of this and was elected as the head of a countermeasure committee by members of the filmmaking community who were against this two-studio plan. 
He had a lot at stake because the company he was currently the head of was set to be closed, leaving him unemployed. And there were a lot of uneasy feelings at this time. We knew there were only going to be two studios. What happened to the jobs of everyone else? Were they going to be folded into the other studios? Were you going to lose your job entirely and not, you know, have another way in to find a job in the career you've been pursuing your whole life? A lot of unknowns were going on. I mean, it was a scary time for, I mean, everyone, but especially those in the film industry. So he counter-offered a plan to the government that would create a third studio consisting of studio mergers. And, you know, this would help them by saving some more jobs and keeping some studio lineage around. This change was quickly agreed to by the Office of Public Information, as they saw this merger as a combination of studios with weak executives who would be easy to control. This would make it almost, you know, a semi-official government studio. So you're almost creating a branch of the government because they feel they can just push around these studio executives that are going to merge no matter who takes control. This is kind of crazy to think about, though, because think if, if you're thinking in today's terms, the government takes over and says, okay, we want to push, you know, we'll keep two studios, we'll keep, uh, let's say, Disney and Paramount and the rest of y'all are done. And then the head of Universal comes in and says, no, 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 wait, I'm going to take, you know, Universal, I'm going to take Lionsgate, I'm going to take, I'm going to take Sony, and I'm going to take Warner Brothers, and we're going to make one big studio, and we will be the third rival studio. You can imagine how that would change the entire landscape of an industry. The new studio was to be called Dainihon Ega, or the Greater Japan Motion Picture Company. This would be shortened to Dai-A later. The three production companies that would merge together were Nikatsu, Shinko, and Daito. Nikatsu was probably the most valuable of the three as they owned a large chain of theaters. You have to think back, this was very much like the golden era of Hollywood where we see studios, you know, controlling their own theater chains in regional sections across the country and they could basically take their movies and put them in those theaters, and they wanted to only play their movies. You know, we had a lot of block booking back then, and that's just how things worked, while they were similar in Japan. However, the head of Nikatsu at the time, Kiyosaku Hori, was disgruntled about the merger because their theaters wouldn't be included in their valuation. This meant they would ultimately have a lesser standing amongst the other two, since, you know, their production studios were the only thing taken into account, and they were smaller. All of his complaining earned the ire of the government, and all of Nikatsu's assets were undervalued, while Shinko's was overvalued due to how much they liked Nagata. We would see a recurring theme, and I think I'll talk about this later. Nagata is just in the right place at the right time for the majority of his career. I think Hori had some words about him saying, You know, he wasn't good, he just kind of fell into place wherever he was. He wasn't talented, it was just right place, right time. As they were overvalued, this made them the dominant entity in the merger, and as such, Nagata would become the president of the new company. The only problem with this was Nikatsu didn't bring their theater chain into the merger, and instead were able to keep it independent. Due to this, they were a company and they being Dae, of a considerable number of studios, but only controlled a small amount of movie theaters that came from Shinko and Daito when they merged. 
It's a little bit of an issue here. Um, you've got the movies, but you've got nowhere to show them. However, this wouldn't be the last of their issues. The other two studios, Toho and Shochiku, and you know those were the two the government wanted to keep around initially, had tied up much of the demographics available already. You'll see this in Japan, our studios are focusing on certain demographics and they make movies for the certain type of people. Toho typically appealed to the urban audiences in the big cities, and Shochiku targeted women with their films. This pretty much left Dae with just farmers and children to target. They found it hard to find any success with their first several films, and actually had to take out a loan from another company in order to survive. On top of this, it seemed like the other studios were always out to get Nagata. No one really liked Nagata, outside of the Department of Public Information who he struck a deal with to make the third studio. They were so much out to get him, that when Dae finally had their breakthrough hit with the film New Snow, the Home Ministry, who were viewed as the governmental rival of the Office of Public Information, had Nagata arrested. You can see that the Home Ministry are in, you know, that's Homeland Security type thing. Um, you can see where they don't really would agree, they really wouldn't agree with Department putting out public information. They're probably always trying to check each other. But they had Nagata arrested. They claimed he bribed the Office of Public Information into accepting his three studio plan. He denied this charge and was eventually released after being held for 50 days. This would not be the end of Nagata's legal troubles, as I will get into much later in this episode. Once the war ended, things were about to change. The Douglas MacArthur-led occupation forces spent a lot of time hunting war criminals, and the film industry wasn't excused from this. The Japan Motion Picture and Drama Employees Union put together a list of suspects. It shouldn't come as a surprise that Nagata was on the list, but Nagata was eventually removed from the list and would be reinstated in 1948 at Dai. So yeah, big changes were coming. Gone are the days of the totalitarian, you know, control of Japan's old government. And in were the new days where yeah, certain subjects weren't to be broached as well, you know, anything anti-democracy. Uh, we can get into that and see what troubles that's going to bring Dae. But Dae is having problems. They had problems in the pre-war stuff. Or they had problems in the, you know, World War II era. They had problems after the World War II era. But let's keep going. Even harder times were in store for Dae in this post-war era. They had virtually no theaters to show their films, and as we had talked about, and no means of acquiring any more. It was kind of a set thing. And even if they could, they had another major issue plaguing them. Most of their movies were banned due to having feudal or anti-democracy messages. You'll remember they played very nicely with the government during the war and made, you know, good propaganda films and whatever else... They're left with pretty much nothing after that. They didn't have any movies before World War II like some of the other studios may have. They just had what they had, and what they had were movies they couldn't show and places they couldn't show them in. Not great. Not a great situation to be in. The Kyoto branch of Dae specialized in period costume dramas, but without any contracts with the top period piece actors, the branch essentially had to close its doors. 
They tried to regain a foothold in the industry by getting in bed with Toho and a distribution scheme. But Shochiku was so opposed to this that Toho dropped the idea immediately. What do all studios on the brink do to turn their fortunes around? Well, they resorted to sensationalism. Eroticism, adultery, and kissing scenes would all be thrown in to try and desperately attract audiences. You have to remember the reserved nature of the Japanese populace, especially at the time, when taking this into consideration. You know, public displays of affection aren't really a Japanese thing. So to see this stuff was pretty uh, scandalous, I guess, for lack of a better term. To get around any negative stigma, they would pull out all sorts of tricks with their material. In the film Brilliant Revenge, they included a play within the film. Just to sneak in a kissing scene, they included, you know, the play Tolstoy's Resurrection in the movie. In this play, the Japanese actors were playing foreigners. Their logic was, this is okay because we know foreigners kiss in public. So these aren't Japanese people kissing in public, these are foreigners, or they're at least acting like foreigners in a play. Audiences couldn't see this as objectionable, if that was the case, you know, foolproof plan. Anyway, (laughs) it's interesting to see what kind of um, stunts they were pulling out on that stuff. But things were about to change for Daie, though. A trip to America by Nagata would change the whole outlook of the studio. Nagata was the first Japanese film industry figure to travel to America after the war. While there, he was asked the question of, are movies made in Japan too? Because no one else really knew about Japanese movies. It was a very insular society. This left him with an urging to enter Japanese films and international film festivals. As luck would have it, Giuliani Stramagoli, who was a sponsor of the Venice Film Festival and head of the Italia Film branch of Japan, was attracted to the strangeness of the Akira Kurosawa film Rashomon and was heavily, you know, campaigning for it to be an entry in the festival. Now how do we get to Rashomon? Well, Nagata seemed to have accidentally signed Kurosawa to a one-year distribution and production contract. He wanted to make Rashomon, but Nagata thought it was too offbeat and wouldn't have success. Eventually, he wore Nagata down and began working on Rashomon. As I think would happen more than once in Kurosawa's career, as you know, we heard about that last time in the Godzilla episode with Redbeard, the film went way over schedule. When it was finally completed, Stramagoli strongly encouraged Nagata to enter it at the Venice Film Festival. He was reluctant to do so because he feared failure. Eventually, he took the leap of faith and decided to enter it in the Venice Film Festival and won. It said Nagata pretty much lucked into this as, you know, he would, as talked about earlier, with everything in his career. Um, It was exactly what Daye needed at the time. Stop this for a second. You know, he accidentally signed Kurosawa to a one-year contract. (laughs) Could you imagine the if the shoe was on the other foot, things had changed and he had signed, you know, Kurosawa accidentally to like a 10-year contract or something. I mean, I don't know if we would have gotten what we got from Kurosawa, but if we did, I mean, Daya would have been on a completely different trajectory. Instead, Kurosawa went to Toho and the rest was history on that. Now, the West was eager to get their hands on more Japanese films. Nagata was in a prime spot to give it to them since he was ahead of the game due to 
entering Rashomon and kind of having that breakthrough. Wanting to break into the international market even further, he decided color would be the way to do it. Dye had been experimenting with color for a while, but the quality of the current color they were using wasn't great, and that goes across the board in Japan. Eastman Color, which would, you know, I don't know if it was at the time, but it would be part of Kodak, currently had a color film available to use in movies, but it was still in the experimental phases. Nagata decided to take a chance and use it anyway, and this would be the second time, early on here anyway, that a Nagata risk paid off. The use of the new color in the film Gate of Hell would provide a boon for Daiei. The movie was seen as normal enough for a domestic release, while still being exotic enough to entice the international markets. Gate of Hell was said to have the most beautiful color ever shown on screen up to that time, and it's all thanks to Eastman Color. It would not only go on to win the Cannes Grand Prize, but also an Academy Award later. This would set up Dai as a major player in the international market. They would continue to toe the line between safe enough for Japan and exotic enough for foreigners. It was said at the time, and I think Nagata had said this himself, something to the effect of the Japanese domestic market were looking for pretty much just standard status quo, not anything special films. So that's how Nagata viewed it anyway. Not everything was great with the release of Gate of Hell, though. Japanese critics failed to see what the international markets did in the film and felt the warm reception elsewhere as a decree that the Japanese critics didn't know what they were talking about and they didn't know what made a great film. This, of course, wasn't the case. I'm sure these critics were just enjoying the film that they had seen. Daie would put out a healthy slate of color films going forward, but unfortunately Nagata would make a critical error. He assumed that the answer to what the West wanted were large-scale period pieces. This would prove disastrous, as Daie forgot to focus on making good movies and instead wanted to make these slicker-looking productions. Their next slate of films didn't hit in the West and had very little success in Japan either. They would blaze the trail for other domestic studios, though. Color began to make its way into other, into other companies' films, and they also learned what not to do with co-productions by watching a few, you know, failed co-productions that Daiei made. Daiei would regroup after these failed co-productions, at the same time the Japanese film industry was transforming itself. There would now be six major studios, each with their own audience or demographic to stick to. And, you know, these were kind of assigned, they were a little flexible, you could go in and out of it, but you mainly stayed to your demographic. This would hopefully provide security to all six of them in this turbulent time. Along with Daiei, Toho, and Shochiku, we would see the reemergence of Nikatsu in the production realm, and the formation of two new studios in Toei and Shintoho. Daiei's main audience that they secured from all this were the young teenagers, and that fit into their type of exploitation film that they were going after earlier in the little earlier before the other studios came around. This brought with it a shedding of the old rivalries and brought a healthy sense of competition into the Japanese film industry, which I think we can probably say is a good thing. After the success of Godzilla and 54, Daiei set out to make a sci-fi movie for international audiences called Spaceman Appear in Tokyo. They weren't able to sell it to anyone as a feature release, but the movie would eventually play on American TV in the late 60s 
along with most of their other kaiju films. Taiya began embracing a film movement called Taiyazoku, which at its base level were novels and films about young people rebelling against the older generation. Its breakout hit in this field was a movie called Punishment Room, which was billed to be about sex and lawless youth. It was so popular with female high school students that it actually played to standing room only crowds all day long at movie theaters. Daya would continue to trudge on into the 60s with some of its period dramas alongside the long-running Zatoichi, the Blind Swordsman series, and its various kaiju and horror films. So now we're going to take a little break from the Daya history, and we're going to get into the timelines of the Gamera and Daimajin films. There won't be a whole lot about the Daimajin films, but we'll get into that in a little bit. For now, let's start off and go on to the background of Gamera the Giant Monster. So in 1964, Daya set out to make a kaiju movie based on the success of The Birds and as well as Godzilla. So those were their two inspirations on this film. The movie was to be titled Giant Horde Beast Nezera and would feature giant rats attacking Tokyo. Noriaki Yuasa was set to direct with Yonisaburo Tsukiji, set to take on the special effects directing duties. Yuasa was considered a failure by Daae at the time, but was brought on due to no one wanting to do the film. Just like with Godzilla, many thought it was beneath them or that it would ruin their careers. At first, Tsukiji planned on using a combination of stop-motion, suitmation, and radio-controlled props to represent the monsters. However, this didn't work, and they had to use live rats running through miniatures to get the effects. They couldn't control the rats, and many of them were covered in fleas. This forced the health department to shut down the production, and Nezera was officially cancelled. This caused Tsukiji's personal studio to actually fall into debt. Daya wasn't pleased either, as they spent a lot of money for a monster movie, for their, you know, New Year's 1964 slate, and we talked about the importance of that during the first episode. They were determined to use these assets that they used on Nezera to make a different kaiju film. The new idea was birthed by Nagata on his flight home from the U.S. It was said by one of the writers on the Gamera series, Nissan Takahashi, that he either envisioned a turtle flying beside the plane, or he saw an island shaped like a turtle. And that is what inspired Nagata to take this spin on a new kaiju movie. Nagata shared his premise and asked for everyone to start coming up with ideas for a movie. Takahashi wrote two treatments for the film. These were titled, First, a lowly tortoise flies through the sky, and then a fire-eating turtle attacks Japan. After reading the latter of these two treatments, Nagata asked for a full screenplay from Takahashi. The name of the giant turtle was to be Kamera, and that is K-A-M-E-R-A, since Kame was the word for turtle in Japanese, and as, you know, we previously discussed, the you gotta do it, just put the ra at the end of the kaiju's name. However, it would be changed to Gamera, since Kamera was too close in pronunciation to the Japanese word for Kamera, and that is C-A-M-E-R-A, that you take pictures with, you know. They did not want those two getting confused, so they changed it to Gamera. Yuasa was brought on once again as the director since he started Nezera. He was treated terribly, though, by most of the studio. Many talked down to him, telling him the film would never rival Godzilla, 
and it was doomed to fail. The film was also given a very low budget of 40 million yen, and was switched to black and white due to their lack of confidence. So you have to remember that color was the big thing of the day, that was the word of the day in Dae at this time, and they wouldn't even give color to this film because they felt it would be wasting assets. Yuasa was determined to finish this film and make it a success, going as far as to take special effects classes so he could help Tsukiji with that aspect of the filming, and this would pay off handsomely for him later. The Gamera suit was designed to move on all fours in order to set it apart from most of the other kaiju films that had come before it. There were several issues that arose on set, though, most of which were due to the small budget. The crew had to work with faulty props and outdated equipment, and even struggled to get enough power to light a soundstage for the special effects. So you can see quite the uphill battle here. Here's a pretty good example of, you know, when things go from bad to worse. For scenes set in the Arctic, they had three truckloads of ice brought in on set, which of course melted immediately. They had to delay production by three days to dry out the studio after the melting ice caused a flood. So yeah, not, uh, not going great here, but it would get worse for Yuasa, because there were now calls by the crew that Yuasa couldn't cut it and that they should bring in someone else to finish it. Subaraya Productions, Subaraya of the Godzilla Special Effects director fame, were even mentioned as a studio that would be brought in to finish this thing. But Yuasa refused and ended up finishing out the film. You would see Yuasa is very stubborn man as we continue on through this. He has a, a vision and a goal and he wants it to be achieved. Gamera the Giant Monster was released in Japan on November 27th of 1965 and was a much bigger hit than the studio expected. This led to a higher budget for the sequel. The initial American release got the same treatment as King of the Monsters with several reshoots done to give the movie a more American feel. So we know that always works out really well. They also added an extra M to Gamera, so no one would call him Camera instead. So they took it even a step further and added an, you know, G-A-M-M-E-R-A. So it just for, it looks very weird if you see <laughs> if you see it written out somewhere. It really does. A new dub was done for this movie, and it was released in December of 1966 as Gamera the Invincible. Jumping ahead a little bit, and this would be the case for a lot of these films is Sandy Frank Film Syndication would buy the rights to many of these Gamera films in 1985 and redub the Japanese versions. Frank would release these on Mystery Science Theater 3000, and I believe that Gamera the Giant Monster, or I think it was just called Gamera, is the only movie to actually appear on that show twice, or one of the only movies. So to set up the first film we'll talk about tonight, which is Gamera the Giant Monster, this was released in 1965 again, and it had a 79-minute runtime. The synopsis states that a nuclear explosion in the far north unleashes Gamera, the legendary flying turtle, from his sleep under the ice. In his search for energy, Gamera wreaks havoc over the entire world, and it's up to the scientist, assisted by a young boy with a strange, sympathetic link to the monster, to put a stop to Gamera's rampage. So that last line is something I want to focus on, because that's what basically sets Gamera apart from something like Godzilla, is that even when the movie's taken seriously, everything's serious, and it's supposed to be like a Godzilla-type knockoff, Gamera still has a link to children, and it's always kind of been aimed at children. 
And we have that in this film as well. There is a child here. It's not, it's not to the extent that we would get later on in the series for sure. But this first film is pretty much just that. I mean, it's, it's the Godzilla of this franchise, not in quality, but in terms of how they approached it. I mean, it's a lot of the military trying to stop Gamera. You know, he's tearing down power plants, and he's doing this and that, and this destruction, and he's flying all over the world. And So yeah, I guess if you're not familiar, first and foremost, Gamera, in the beginning of this movie, he's awakened by a bomb, you know, hitting in the Arctic and shaking this giant ancient turtle awake. And one of the Eskimos there gives a scientist something that says, you know, this is Gamera. He's an ancient beast and all this stuff. And he's got, you know, Gamera has tusks. He's a giant turtle, but he's got tusks. He breathes fire. He can fly. He's got a lot of cool abilities. This is basically just tracking the military, tracking the scientist, trying to figure out how to stop Gamera. And in the end, I think they come up with a pretty creative way to stop him in the very end of this. That's just my opinion, but it's a little bit different than what we've seen in the past. I think in the original Godzilla, they had an interesting way of stopping that monster as well. But this isn't quite as elaborate. Of course, it had a very small budget, but it gives you that old school classic monster movie feel with being in the black and white and being just a single monster, not fighting anything, just destroying stuff. So I, I mean, I like this one quite a bit when compared to the other films of the Showa era. And what you're going to see in the Showa era is, uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about it as we go along. We're uh, Let's not jump ahead of ourselves, but just know that the movies of the Showa era and the Heisei era and Gamera are very different. I think you could say the same about Godzilla as well, but there's just not as many. I mean, there's a decent amount of Showa era Gamera films, and they're kind of all over the place, just like Godzilla was. As the times change, the movies change. This is, again... One that takes itself pretty seriously. It's a pretty good monster movie. It's a very solid monster movie, I think. I don't think, if you're not into monster movies, this isn't going to really change your mind. As, you know, some other films might in the Gamera franchise. But it's a pretty cool place to start for Gamera itself, if you want to start there. That's up to you whether you want to go through another Godzilla-like again. I think there are a ton of Godzilla-like movies that Toho was putting out and all this. and. That's this. This is pretty much the origin story. He's not fighting anyone else, but it's got a solid uh, human character story. It's nothing great, but it's solid, and it's got a pretty cool monster in Gamera. So, so as we move into the sequel here, you've got to be thinking that Yuasa here is going to get you know showered with praise, and he's going to be the main guy driving Gamera forward and all of this stuff. Well, you'd be half right, but maybe not yet. Gamera vs. Baragon is the follow-up to Gamera the Giant Monster. And this one was rushed into production after the first film was such a success. It's claimed that the budget doubled as well and was being treated like an A-list film, so they're no longer having to scrounge for a director or anyone to work on this movie. This meant Yuasa was demoted to special effects director and Shigeo Tanaka was brought on to direct. Congratulations, you made us a lot of money with your first movie that no one thought would succeed. Um, you're out as director on the next one. So they tried the approach, and I don't know, I don't think you often see this. You do see the rush in production, but I mean, they doubled the budget of this thing. They're treating it, you know, they're putting a pretty big name director for them on this movie. 
you don't often see that with a sequel. So Yuasa is on record, though, as saying he didn't mind the demotion since he had a father-son type relationship with Tanaka. And I still think that's pretty bad. I mean, for the way everyone treated him with the first movie, and then, again, you reward him with the demotion. I'm not all about that, but whatever. Um, good for Yuasa for hanging tough in that. With this installment, Daya was looking to target an adult audience first and foremost. So I think you that's another way where things are maybe not going in the direction we'd normally see, like the tra- trajectory we would normally see on this type of thing. They're not targeting children. They're not going to do anything down. They're going strictly for an adult audience. Kojiro Hongo was cast in the lead much to his dismay. And the story with Hongo is a pretty interesting tale here. Nagata had been waiting a long time to cast Hongo as the lead in a film, but he kind of felt stuck when he was attached to this one. He even faked an illness and put some blood on the tissues and pretended to have chills when a pair of managers came to check on him. Unfortunately for him, they agreed to delay the production as long as it took for him to feel better. So maybe too convincing of an acting job there. Hongo didn't even read the script after he got it, though. This was mainly because once he talked to Yuasa, he didn't believe that there'd be much acting in the movie. The thing was with that is he wasn't aware that there was both a special effects and a drama director. So he wasn't aware that Tanaka was going to be doing these very dramatic, very acting first scenes. It wasn't just a giant monster destroying stuff. Hongo admitted years later that he was actually proud and grateful to have been in the Gamera and Daimajin movies. Takahashi was back for the writing duties here and was told to write a lavish spectacle that took the monster parts very seriously. So once again, we're taking this monster seriously, this is no laughing matter, as Godzilla kind of spirals into comedy, or gets ready to spiral into comedy at this point. We're taking everything very seriously. The original title was Gamera vs. the Ice Giants. Takahashi got his inspiration from the Jotnar of Norse mythology, as well as the snow creatures from the silent French film that, of course, everyone knows, uh, Conquest of the Pole. Actually, I'd be interested if anyone does know that film. I mean, I'm looking at, like, Nathan Bartlebar, Dave Becker here. I'm sure there's somebody out there that knows Conquest of the Pole, but not me. In the film, ice giants from space came to Earth and began dropping nuclear bombs into volcanoes in order to terraform the Earth into a new ice age. Now, and when I say in the film, I meant in this version of the script. There was no film on this. The giants were said to be grotesque with their skeletons and organs visible from the outside. So that, that doesn't sound bad. That sounds pretty good to me. I'd be up to see that movie. It would never happen, but yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool movie to me. Essentially, the script didn't move forward. We'd see the elements of that script in, you know, somewhat into Baragon and other elements would go into another film, which we'll get to in a few minutes here. The name Baragon is a contraction for the words Baru, from the aboriginal word for crocodile's ancestor, and Gon, from the end of dragon. That's where it comes from. (laughs) Enlightening as ever with these names. There were extensive changes to the script as they went along, including the recap at the beginning being added in order to catch up any viewers who hadn't watched it, watched the first movie. If you had any doubts that they were aiming at adults, 
in the one of these script versions, the village women who were dancing were, you know, they were initially supposed to be topless. So that would have been something to see in a Gamera film, especially the way the series went later on. Tsukichi didn't return for this film as a special effects director due to him starting his own company, and this would pave the way for Yuasa to take the lead there. Yuasa demoted from director, but he did get to do the special effects, and it kind of paid off where he took those classes and helped Tsukiji on the first film. Ryusaka Takayama, who was the suit creator on Ultraman, was brought in on the film to work on the monster designs. The special effects took a whopping 73 days to film, and it was delayed a day because this was at the very end. The Baragon suit wouldn't sink in the water like it was supposed to. To make the suit sink, Takayama had to remove the head from the costume, after which they were able to get the costume to sink and they could finish production. In an interesting crossroads, Yuasa's father was an acquaintance of Eji Tsuburaya, and because of this, Yuasa was able to take some of the resources from Tsuburaya Productions to help with effects. The movie ended up releasing on April 17th of 1966 in Japan, and it was on a double bill with Daimajin, which... We will get to here soon. The film had a disappointing box office return in Japan, and Yuasa, while he was at a screening, noticed that children were looking bored, and they were losing their, he felt really that they were losing their core audience to, you know, trying to aim this at adults. He decided this was due to the long stretches in between the monsters being on screen, and would later make sure to reveal the monsters earlier and show them more often to keep children entertained. After release, Daya commissioned an English dub in anticipation of a wide U.S. theatrical release, just like the original got. Unfortunately, there was no theatrical release in the United States, and the original dub went completely unused. And I don't think this would be the first time either. I think they dubbed every single one of at least this first run in anticipation of it getting picked up in the U.S., and they just redubbed everything, so... No point. AITV, which is American International TV, secured the TV rights to this Gamera vs. Gaios and Gamera vs. Virus in 1967. They had their own dubs done and would cut 12 minutes from the film while retitling it War of the Monsters. And we're going to get into this, but these, these dubbed titles are awful. They're so generic and they're so awful, and so many times they're just trying to compete with one of the big Toho films by naming it something different. It's like what Asylum does with their horror movies or sci-fi channel or something like that. Anyway, that's the background we have on this movie. Let's set it up and talk about it a little bit. So Gamera vs. Barogon released in 1966, and it was 106 minutes long, so a decent amount longer than the original movie. The synopsis reads, Gamera escapes from his rocket enclosure and makes his way back to Earth as a giant opal from New Guinea is brought back to Japan. The opal is discovered to have been an egg that births a new monster called Barugan. The creature attacks the city of Osaka by emitting destructive rainbow ray from his back, along with a freezing spray capable of incapacitating Gamera. So to set this one up, this is my favorite of the Showa-era Gamera movies. And there's a couple interesting things here. First, Barogon is, you know, again, by assuming the name, you can tell that he's kind of like a Komodo dragon type thing, like he's a half crocodile, half dragon type animal. And he does, like it said, have this rainbow ray that comes out 
of his back, and that Rainbow Ray is incredible. I love the Rainbow Ray. It really pushes Baragon up my list of kaiju. He also has the Ice Breath, which I think we would see this, you know, this is that leftover from Gamera versus the Ice Giants, or whatever it was. And, yeah, it's... It's just a cool little movie. It, the beginning of it did not catch me at all, but I liked the characters enough as it went through. It was a pretty plausible type adventure story almost, and we do get to see, even though he's not really technically the good guy or the guardian of the children or friend of the children yet, whatever, whatever he would be, you know, all that nonsense, Gamera is pretty cool in this one. I actually think, so you can see where the money dries up, because they got 80 million for this one, 80 million yen. You can just see diminishing returns as the budget gets lower and lower as we move on to these films. But I think here, the production value is very high. Baragon, like I said, is awesome. We're back in color, you know, there's only one black and white Gamera movie. I really do um, like the cast of characters, and I like the battles and everything else. So... Baragon ranks very high on my, you know, kaiju list. It's up there, it's right up there with a lot of the Godzilla films that I love. It really is the best in the Showa era of Gamera films. I really do believe that. Yeah, if that wasn't enough, I mean, if Rainbow Ray out of a back isn't enough to get you in, I don't know what will be. But Baragon is definitely, it's an easy enough starting point. It's nice to know Gamera's origins in the first film, but you don't really need to know that. I would absolutely recommend Gamera vs. Baragon for all kaiju fans. And, you know, you never know. Maybe I don't think the story is good enough to pull in non-kaiju fans, but maybe. You never know. Alright, we're going to switch gears a little bit and move on to the film series that was double-billed with this one when it released and that is the Daimajin Trilogy. Unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot on the Daimajin Trilogy, as there's just not much background on these films. We do know, like I said before, that it was created out of the ashes of Gamera versus the Space Icemen. Now, we do have a couple of interesting little facts, but nothing that really amounts to anything. For instance, Daimajin was played by a former baseball player, Chikara Hashimoto. His eyes were actually left visible, and you can notice this right away when you see the movie. So they were visible through the mask, and he wasn't able to blink during takes. His eyes became bloodshot for that reason, and also due to the fact that they shined bright lighting on him during filming. Again, the real unsung hero of all these are the people actually playing the kaiju in these movies. So what is the Daimajin Trilogy? Well, it was a series of three films that were all released in 1966. What do they share in common? Well, they're all set in feudal Japan, and they also have this giant stone entity that comes and you know wreaks havoc on evil. That's about the only connecting threads to the films themselves. To give a little bit of background, these all did release in the Same year under different directors, Daimajin released on April 17th of 1966. The Return of Daimajin released on August 13th of 1966. And Daimajin Strikes Again, or The Wrath of Daimajin, released on December 10th of 1966. A quick turnaround for these movies. It's a lot of 
I mean, that's just intense to think that they put three of these out in the same year. So I'm going to go down one by one on these movies and go a little bit through them. Um, let's start with Daimajin. Daimajin was directed by Kimiyoshi Yasuda, and this one ran for 84 minutes long. A brief synopsis here says, A giant stone statue comes to life to protect the residents of a small town against the depredations of an evil warlord. So, Daimajin is really weird when we're talking about kaiju movies. First of all, uh, you know, it is set in the time of the samurai, so it's, I think, first and foremost a samurai film, and I think this is where Daie's, you know, conscientious budget comes into play. They can make this giant stone statue movie, but it's going to be set in, you know, the times of samurai, which I think were fairly... I mean, I know they were fairly popular, and probably what I'm thinking of, they were fairly easier and cheaper to make than these giant city sets or these miniatures that you had to make and these giant monster suits. I, you know, I do like that it is set in that era. It does grow, you know, if you're watching these back-to-back, it does get a little old at some point, but I don't think that's necessarily the um, era's fault and it's more of the film's fault as we get on in the trilogy but this first one I'm just gonna say it straight up here is if you're used to watching Gamera or Godzilla or anything like that we don't get a monster in this movie we don't get Daimajin until probably about 10 minutes left in the movie 10 or 15 minutes left in the movie and he goes on this awesome rampage this awesome rampage of vengeance essentially what you have is you know, have you the god of uh, Shinto, I believe, um, is the name, and that comes into play in a movie called, you know, Orochi the Eight-Head Dragon that I will be talking about on the last episode of this series. But you've got that, and that's basically a really good god, really uh, benevolent god. And then you have Majin, which is an evil spirit, and essentially when Majin has been confined to this stone which people worship and have festivals around. Basically, the lord of this castle gets assassinated, and everyone on his side gets assassinated, and there's a new ruler who is much crueler than before. Basically, you know, treats the people who live there like garbage, stops the festivals to celebrate around the Majin monument, you know, things go bad, and things go bad for the oppressors when Daimajin shows up, and that's basically, I'm not really spoiling anything, because there's not really much to this. I do like the characters in this movie, to an extent, I think they're pretty good, and again, that last rampage by Daimajin is one for the ages, but it just takes a long time to get there. I will say it does offer, for anyone interested in this, it does offer a different kind of kaiju movie, a different kind of giant monster movie than something maybe we're used to seeing. So I think that's cool. I don't know if it's something I would start with, but it's definitely something if you're interested. And Daimajin is a cool uh, monster with a cool design, so uh, you can't go wrong there. Now, I don't know, this is not my favorite in the series, but we'll get to that shortly. I would, you know, like I said, recommend this to anyone who's looking to get deeper into kaiju. I think it's a cool hidden gem, the Arrow video on Earth, and they put the entire trilogy out on Blu-ray, which have their their own separate Blu-rays, which is really cool. So Arrow has these and the Gamera movies, 
and I would recommend picking up any of those sets, honestly, if you're into kaiju. The follow-up was the return of Daimajin, and I think this is where you start to get diminishing returns. No pun intended there. This was directed by Kenji Masumi, and it ran for 79 minutes, so a little bit shorter than the first. The synopsis reads, The tyrannical lord Danjo Mikoshiba covets the rich, fertile land surrounding Lake Yakumo. During a memorial ceremony for the late Chigusa Lord, Mikashoba launches an attack, overthrowing the Honorable Lord Jura. Just when all seems lost, Daimajin rises from Lake Yakumo to settle a score of its own. So that might sound a little similar to the first, and I had to second-guess myself even for a minute. But this one's basically set up, you know, there's an island in between these two kingdoms, and they both use it, and I believe there's the lands of... Daimajin in there as well, where there's a shrine and all that stuff. Either way, I'm not going to talk much about The Return of Daimajin. I think it's fine. My thing is the movie kind of gets into a lull and is just more of the same, essentially. You know, we see peasants beaten down and all this. In this one, I found it hard to follow the characters. It was much harder to follow characters and get engaged with them. But... I I don't know. It's still cool, and of course, when Daimajin comes out, which again, you're not going to get much of Daimajin, it's really awesome. But again, I think it's um, diminishing returns. I think it's rinse and repeat. I think the story is forgettable. The characters are much more forgettable than the first movie. And, you know, they all do get their comeuppance in a pretty brutal way. But this is by far the lesser of the three for me. And I, I wish there was more to talk about here, but I, I just don't have a whole lot to talk about on Daimajin. But I will, I do want to talk about the last entry in this trilogy a little bit more and then kind of sum up the whole series at the end. So I want to talk about for a minute, because I think we've all probably ran into this when watching kaiju movies. Do we watch the English language version? Do we watch the Japanese version? Usually I opt for the Japanese version in most situations, but I did grow up with the English version of Godzilla movies, so I don't necessarily mind that when I'm watching them. Now, this time through, for most of the movies I've been watching, I've been watching them in Japanese. So I always want to check out, you know, an Arrow player, Arrow video player, you know, their streaming service. They had they had both versions of all three of these films, and I thought, oh, I'll check those out too, just to see what the difference was between them. Well, I think the first two dubs are among some of the better that I've heard, and yeah, I think they were pretty good. I really do, and then I get to this third one, and I go to try out that dub, and I'm like, ah, this is miserable. Did they they run out of money for this? Did they um, phone it in? It was not good. I would recommend probably watching the entire trilogy in Japanese with the subtitles, but if you do want to opt for English, the first two are good. The uh, third film in the trilogy, not so great, but I do think these are superior dubs to a lot of the Gamera movies, um, at least the first two Daimashin movies are. That's certainly a way to go, but I do know that the third movie is a little rough. Speaking of the third movie, The Wrath of Daimashin. So I've got a lot to say about this one. Let's set it up first, though. So this one was directed by Kazuya Mori. And again, it's either Wrath of Daimajin or Daimajin Strikes Again or one of those. It doesn't matter. 
but the synopsis reads, and this is at 87 minutes, the longest of the three. And the synopsis reads, In a mountainous region of Japan, Lord Arakawa kidnaps the men of nearby villages to use as slave labor, producing gunpowder for his sulfur pits. A band of young boys decide to rescue their enslaved fathers on their own. So in this one we start out, the whole driving premise of this thing is, are these boys who they set out, like they said, all their fathers are basically away from their families in these slave camps, and they're going out to try to save them, and they're crossing this dangerous terrain, and they're going into enemy territory where they will be murdered if they're found. I mean, these guys aren't messing around. They're also braving the elements and the snow and everything out there. So that's the driving thing. Do know that there are kids at the center of this one. Another thing of note, I want to, this is not, this is one of the older school monster movies where it is just a monster against, you know, humankind or buildings or whatever you want to say. That's what we have here. So don't go into Daimajin expecting that there's going to be any kind of battles between Daimajin and another monster. So those are the disclaimers up front, but this has an, a great opening involving uh, Daimajin and some natural disasters, and basically in this he's tied much more to the earth, and he's causing these natural disasters, and with Daimajin comes the, you know, the wrath down on Mother Earth. You know, if there's a snowstorm, then the villagers automatically ex- assume that it's Daimajin, and I think here the story is much easier to track with and I think the characters are much easier to follow and know who's who it's just much more digestible and I don't know I do like the kids at the front of this they're not I don't think they're annoying or obnoxious or anything like that when compared to kids in other movies but I really do like that element Um, it just somehow seems like more of a personal story than the other two are even though we do have characters that are cool and everything It's just not the same sometimes. There's also, in this one, it's a hawk or a falcon or some kind of large bird. And so we get some non-Daimajin carnage a little later on. And the effects of this bird are awful. But I thought it was pretty cool and I ended up enjoying it. It's very goofy. It's not the greatest of effects. But I, I loved that piece. When we do finally get to, you know, Daimajin rampaging, I think it is the best in the series. I think you can tell that the budget was a little higher here. And I mean, I just think that's easier to tell. And there's a very somber score at the end. The last song in the movie is very somber. But I think at the same time, this ending is the most hopeful of everything. Usually it ends up with, you know, just everything destroyed and, you know, things not going great for anyone. I think this is by far the most happy ending. If you can call it that. So this one, you can tell I like a great deal more. This is my favorite of the three. Now, of course, if you're going to watch this, you're going to watch all three of these movies, maybe break it up and watch them separately and not back to back to back like I did, at least the first time through. And I think you'll have a good time if you just go in knowing what you're in for. You're in for very little Daimajin action, but when you get it, it's pretty good. Again, that arrow set is amazing. It's also on the arrow player if you want to try that out before you buy it. Yeah, I really do like the whole concept around these films. Now, the execution isn't always there, but I think these three are at least worth one-time watch, and I think two of them are definitely worth the price of admission for the trilogy set on Blu-ray. 
I know I didn't talk a whole lot about Daimajin, but there's not really a whole lot to go off of. But I do have a couple other notes before I want to end this. And we're kind of going out of our timeline here, but I do want to wrap up Daimajin in a nice little bow. You know, all three of these came out in the same year. There's really not a lot to say. I just want to get it all out in one stretch. So in 1984, Ishiro Honda was actually approached by Daie to direct a remake of the original film. Honda was interested, but unfortunately the project never moved forward. I think that would have been pretty cool if we would have seen Honda come back in the director's seat and take on Daimajin. Uh, I don't know what the budget would have been if it's the same as, you know, Gamera Super Monster around the same time. Maybe we didn't want to see it, but I think that would have been cool. That's not the end of the attempted revivals, though. In 1998, Steven Seagal was set to star in another attempted remake, but that didn't happen either. And you know what? Daya was doing pretty good stuff at the time with Gamera, but I don't know if I'd want to see that. That sounds a little iffy to me. The most recent attempt to revive the series was in 2006 when Takashi Miike was set to direct a reboot. Unfortunately, Gamera the Brave bombed and the movie was shelved. That's unfortunate because I really think Miike could have done a pretty good job with this. And, you know, he did other, he did another revival for um, Daiei with, you know, Yokai Monsters, uh, the Great Yokai War. And that's something we'll definitely be talking about uh, if I ever get to like a J-Horror episode or something like that. I will delve in with those. There are monsters, but they're not really, it's not really kaiju movies, but. And Daimajin's only other appearance outside of the original trilogy would be in Miike's sequel to The Great Yokai War, which would be The Great Yokai War Guardians. And that came out just last year in Japan. I don't even know if it's available to watch here yet, but apparently Daimajin is in that and a bunch of other kaiju or monsters or yokai or whatever. Let's wrap up Daimajin in closing, you know, Again, I absolutely recommend it if you are a diehard kaiju fan or if you've been into Godzilla and Gamera and want to dip your toes somewhere else. Daimajin is a great place to move to, even though it is kind of a different film. So what's next for Daie after Daimajin? Well, we're going to continue out and finish up the Showa-era Gamera series in order here. And the next one will be Gamera vs. Gaios. The movie was greenlit as soon as Baragon was released, and that is uh, Gamera versus Baragon, sorry. This time, they decided to aim the movie more towards children, although I would argue that this one still maintains a good tone before the series kind of jumps the shark or alien squid or something like that, and really just goes full bore on this is pretty much only meant to be enjoyed by children. I think this one still walks a pretty good line. The film's budget was in between that of Gamera the Giant Monster and Gamera vs. Baragon, with a 60 million yen price tag. When Gamera vs. Baragon underwhelmed at the box office, it was decided that Yuasa would direct both the special effects and the film as a whole because of his success with the first film. So he's, he's kind of vindicated here after we had talked about he was pulled off the sequel they made it more of an A picture and gave it a bigger budget and all this stuff. Well, now he's kind of indicated because he's back in command and he has a higher budget than he did on Gamera the Giant Monster, at least. Yuasa was inspired by both Frankenstein Conquers the World and War of the Gargantuas, which we'll be talking about both of those later on in another episode. 
he was intrigued by the idea of having Dracula in a Gamera movie. Yeah, some some crazy stuff here, um, <laughs> if you really think about it. But let's let's continue on. As I already discussed, Yuasa thought the previous movie didn't do a good job of keeping the attention of children, and he set to correct that. He wanted to format it like a children's book to keep them from getting bored by the human characters and even held meetings to discuss how to get to the action as quickly as possible so kids would stay entertained. The movie had a couple of contemporary real-life influences. The first was the volcanic eruptions that were happening in the Philippines at the time. There were legitimate fears that Mount Fiji may indeed start erupting, and people were kind of scared of that. The other real-life incident were the protests going on by the people of Sanrazuka about the construction of the new Tokyo airport. With this one specifically, producer Hademasa Nagata felt like including societal issues in film made them more interesting. So take a couple of real-life things going on around Japan at the time, and it's going to draw in more people. He went on record as wanting there to be a correlation between the protest and Gaius's awakening to let children know that there are consequences of doing bad things. Nissan Takahashi was back to write this one, and wrote the first draft of the script under the title of Gamera vs. Vampire. I mean, let's let's slow down there for a minute. Yeah, Gaios is kind of, I mean, that's where they started with, is him kind of being this kind of, I think, bat-vampire-type creature. Could you imagine if it was Gamera versus a vampire? I mean, Frankenstein Conquers the World, from all accounts that I heard, is an insane film. I will find that out on my own when I watch it. But I, I can't even imagine the idea of thinking that a universal-type monster would fit in the same realm as these giant kaiju. I mean, they are completely different. I think it would have been extremely interesting if we did see that movie, but it also could have been extremely goofy. So... I'm happy with what we got. I'm not going to sit here and wish for something else, but I digress. Gaius's original name was even Vampira. Nagata would later coin the term Gaius for the final version, though. Yuasa hated the addition of military and scientific characters in this movie, as well as their presence in any other kaiju movie. He felt that after Godzilla 1954... Everyone just, you know, assumed this is what you have to have. It's a necessity to have these things in a kaiju movie. He wasn't all about that. In what I think is actually kind of a smart move and trying also at the same time to counteract the, you know, the inclusion of the military and the scientist, you also wanted every idea and suggestion that would work out in the end to come from the character Aichi. He didn't want the ideas of adults to work in the Gamera universe. I think it's a very cool way to go. I don't think you ultimately see this. Usually children are just being downplayed in movies, even children's movies a lot of the time. So it's cool that the kids are like thinking outside of the box and coming up with things that adults may not think of. To this point, he had Aichi bring up the nocturnal nature of Gaios, And like I just said, he stated that this is a detail that only a child would notice. He thought the connection of children to Gamera showcased the purity of children and was much more effective than using needless exposition dumps. For Gamera, they recycled two suits. The original Gamera suit was used for the fire-breathing sections, and the suit from Gamera vs. Baragon was used for the rest of the filming, with the one change being making Gamera's eyes look more friendly than they did in Gamera vs. Baragon, so 
that's some of that catering to children. But anyway, the underwater scenes with Gamera were actually filmed in a fish tank. You can tell, I seriously, you once the series gets past this, you see some scenes that are like, I think a child actually made this movie. Not only was this made for children, it was made by children. I think a lot of that had to do with the shoestring budget they were working with. They did the best they could with what they had. I think in some of those later films, yeah, they might have a little bit of, um, I think some scenes are pretty bad, but I think they make up for it and used a lot of the budget in other ways, and I would rather see some of the scenes, and I'll get to one specifically a couple movies on, but. The movie was finally released in Japan on March 15th of 1967. People attending were given construction paper Gaios gliders and paper toys of Baragon and Gamera. I think that's actually pretty cool. I would kill for that as a child. The film was never released in U.S. theaters. Instead, it was released straight to TV as Return of the Giant Monsters in 1967. This is a running theme. This is going to happen throughout the rest of these movies, so... That's something we're just going to have to, you know, keep repeating over and over. I want to talk about this movie a little bit here. This was directed by Noriaki Yuasa and ran for 86 minutes. The synopsis reads, Unusual volcanic activity in Japan awakens Gaios, a bloodthirsty flying monster, with the power to slice things in half with an ultrasonic ray. While scientists and the military scramble to devise a way to stop this new threat, a young boy forms an alliance with Gamera, a monster no one else seems to trust. So right off the bat, there are a couple interesting things in this movie. First of all, we get Gaios, who is the closest thing to an like a through line or an iconic monster in the Gamera series. Now, I don't think Gaios is the best in the Gamera series. I think he's probably, as far as villains go, like maybe fifth, fourth, fifth, something like that. But Gaios appears in several different films. I think, honestly, the Gamera monster designs, even though they had less budget, I think a lot of the times they're way more creative than what was going on at Toho. I just I just think they're awesome. I mean, there are so many great designs that just aren't cookie cutter. They aren't just an animal that's mutated. Gamera does an incredible job in that regards. But, you know, we'd see Gaios several times. But, so it establishes Gaios, and this is the start of the shift to more kid-friendly movies, but I don't think this one quite goes over that line. I This is, to me, the last movie that I thoroughly enjoyed in the Gamera series until you get later on, past the Showa era. So the other thing is we start to get Gamera as a good guy. I mean, I don't think he was really portrayed as a... Obviously, the villain of Gamera the Giant Monster, and I think he was kind of a maybe a little bit more in the light of a good guy in Gamera vs. Baragon, but not really. Here's where we start to really get a lot of connections to the children. We get a lot of this and that, and Gamera saving the day and all this, and we would get a much more heroic Gamera going forward because, you know, you're aiming this at young children, that's what they're going to want. I love the aspect. There's some good comedy here, though, for the adults. Like I said, this is not necessarily just a straight-up kids' movie. There's a giant debate going on about these people in this village, and, you know, they're trying to stop the construction going on around their village. They want to buy them out, and they want to hold off for a better deal, so they're holding off and holding off, and then giant monsters show up, and pretty much worth nothing. So, 
that's kind of funny, and I really do like Gaios and the battles that Gamer and Gaios have in this movie. I think it's a really cool movie. I think it's still got some pretty good characters in it, even though we're starting to lose that a little bit that we had in the films before this. But Gamera versus Gaios is, for me, the last bastion of hope in the Showa era. After this, the only thing you can really fall back on are the cool monster designs that Gamera is going up against. That's my personal opinion. We can talk more about that later. But I really enjoy Gamera versus Gaios. I think these first three make a pretty good trilogy. And then there's obviously another trilogy later on that are good films. And I think those are the core Gamera films for me. Everything else is, you know, let's watch to see some of the cool monster action. That's about all you're going to get out of it. If you're an adult, if you're a kid, maybe you like them better. But I will say that a lot of these are made ten times cooler by what was on the Arrow sets for, like, the artwork and stuff. Let's go ahead and move on from that one and move into Gamera versus Virus. Daae was in some financial trouble in 1968, and that led to them cutting the budget of this movie to just 20 million yen, or half of what the original was given. It's pretty easy to see also where the budget affected this film. Now, you gotta step back and take a look at that. So you're given 40 million for the first, goes up to 80 million, cut slightly to 60 million, and since the company's in trouble, we're gonna go down even more to just 20 million yen. This is an interesting time period as well, because I think Daya is putting out some really good stuff between what we've already talked about and the Yokai Monster movies. Yeah, so with when you're Yuasa, you're just given a small amount of money and you're just doing what you can. I can kind of see where these movies would fall off, you know? The film was shot in only 25 days, and they had to reuse footage from earlier Gamera movies. This is the first time that they actually had to do that, but, I mean, you're seeing that as well in Toho. Toho is also starting to reuse footage at this time, or maybe just a little later. We're starting to get into that era where they're reusing a lot of footage. American International TV had it in their contract with Daae that an American boy had to be one of the two main characters, and you would see this... I know we at least see it in um, Giron. I don't know where else we would see it. I'm trying to think. I've seen Zigra, but it's been a while, and I didn't want to go back and watch it again. But we do see it at least in the next couple of movies where there is a Japanese child and an American child. Well, they couldn't find a Japanese-speaking American child actor, so they used the son of a U.S. Army member who had no acting experience whatsoever. It was released in theaters in Japan on March 20th, 1968, so that same time period that we saw Gamera vs. Gaios. It was apparently such a success, though, that Yuasa was asked if he could make two more Gamera movies a year. So when I read that, that's reading to me like, can you make three Gamera movies in a year? And that's insane. That is insanity. But Yuasa stated it was impossible. However, this would lead to more Gamera movies being made in the future, which is always good. Again, there would be no U.S. theatrical release, but it premiered on TV as Destroy All Planets. You can kind of get a sense of what they're doing here from now on with these English titles. Destroy All Planets, just as a um, kind of (laughs) to catch you up here, 1968 was also the year that Destroy All Monsters was coming out. So that gives you a little bit. They're not exactly being subtle, and you might say, Destroy All Monsters didn't come out until August, sure, 
but that movie was cooking for a while, so I'm sure they knew about it in the title. So let's set this up one a little bit before I very briefly talk about this one. This was ran for 81 minutes, and synopsis reads, As alien invaders plot to conquer the Earth, two Boy Scouts steal a mini-submarine and discover Gamera in their midst. Transported to the alien spaceship, the Scouts are menaced by evil inhabitants, including Viras, a squid-like monster that grows to colossal size to battle Gamera. Say what you will about these Gamera films, but I will say one thing. They get pretty insane, and they're all in on the space-type stuff, where Godzilla has some of that too, for sure, especially later on in the series. But they're definitely into that weird alien stuff going on, if only they had kind of a bigger budget. This is one of, I think, if not the weakest designs in the Gamera series. This, uh... This enemy here, Viros, is not very good. I mean, it's okay. But we don't get any Gamera, real Gamera action, you know, battling until the very end of this movie. And even when we do there, I mean, it's pretty insane, the battle that goes on. I mean, it's pretty over-the-top and goofy and all that. Basically have, again, two Boy Scouts and one is notorious for you know getting into trouble and pulling pranks but he also is kind of a genius when it comes to mechanical things so that plays a huge role into this and them stopping you know they're kidnapped uh, by these aliens you know who have this virus creature on board well turns out you know there's a little twist there and these aliens are something they seem not to be it's just really weird i love the I think when you first are introduced to them, you see their eyes like a different color just in the background, and that's really cool, and I like that, you know, this virus creature is in a cage, and all that kind of stuff when they're exploring the ship, but, you know, the ship looks eerily similar to the ship we would see in the next movie, I don't think that's a coincidence, I don't know, or not the ship, but, um, you know, a space area we would see in the next movie. This one for me is very forgettable, it's kind of cool to see the backbone of a good idea. I think the aliens are cool, just like I will in the next movie. I think the idea of the creature is cool, but I don't know if the creature itself is really executed well. And again, you don't get much kaiju action going on here. You get abysmal children characters. You know, <laughs> these it's just children. I don't usually like kids in movies, and I don't think a lot of people do, a lot of adults. When they're portrayed going strictly to a children audience so these kids are like very much I, I don't know it's aimed at children it's acted with children that's my whole point on this one I think this is should be very low on your list if you are going to watch Gamera movies but uh, there's still some good there I don't want to completely dismiss it if you're a Gamera completist you're obviously going to watch this and everything else in the series but yeah use some caution if you're going into it that's all I'm going to say up next is Gamera vs. Giron. So this is where we start to get less and less about these movies. Gamera vs. Giron was originally going to feature a new kaiju named Manga, and this was supposed to fight Giron. But, due to the low budget, they had to reuse Gaio's costume from the earlier movie, and the costume was just painted over silver and called Space Gaios. Now when I was looking up the list of Gamera films, and I hadn't seen this one, and I see that it's got, 
you know, I'm looking at the monsters and I'm seeing Space Gaios. And I'm seeing, you know, and this happens a little bit later on. You'd see Gaios is in a movie. Really, Gaios is not in the movie for very long and gets messed up by Giron. And that is awesome. That's probably the best part of this movie. But let's finish up setting up before we talk about that. It released in Japan on March 21st, 1969. The U.S. release was titled Attack of the Monsters, which All Monsters Attack was the same year for Toho and Godzilla, and was heavily edited and was heavily edited for TV due to the Gaios versus Giron battle, which I was talking about, which was considered too graphic. I'm not aware of the video game called Kaiju Wars that apparently came out this year. I'm assuming that came out in Japan this year. But the movie is one of seven monster movies you can watch in their entirety in the game, along with Ape, and that's capital A-P-E, the U.S. versions of Gamera and Gamera vs. Virus, Polgasari, Tarantula, and Yongari Monster from the Deep. So those ones are all available to watch in that game, which is pretty cool. That's about all we have on Gamera vs. Giron. To uh, set this up a little bit, you do have the original knife head in this movie with gear on. Uh, This one ran for 82 minutes, and it says two young boys, you see the theme here, sneak aboard a spaceship and find themselves whisked away to the mysterious planet Terra. There, they encounter Gamera's old foe Gaios and two female aliens with a taste for human brains. Gamera must save the children and battle the new monster Giron, whose entire body is a deadly living weapon. So yeah, I I love Giron, and I love him just going to town on Gaios and just obliterating Gaios. That's awesome. And I, there's even like the throwaway line in this movie. It's funny because they had the reused Gaios. Oh, they have Gaios here too on this planet. But So they crash land on this alien planet with these two female aliens. And I think that part is all cheesy and awkward and incredibly awesome. I love, I love the cheesy, campy space stuff that goes on in this movie. Unfortunately, again, this is a lot of kid-related stuff where you're going to see a lot of the characters, and the characters aren't anything I care about. These specific characters aren't anything I care about. So even though you do get some awesome fights with Giron, that's about all we have here. As we've got the majesty of Giron, I love I love Giron as a monster. Possibly, I mean, it's one of the best monsters in the Gamera series. That's a cool part of it. Again, I love this wacky, goofy, over-the-top sci-fi alien stuff they have going on in this one. I think that's really cool. But the movie is just, like we will see for the rest of these, it's night and day from these movies and what we saw in the first three in the Showa era. I would recommend this one way over Virus. I think if you're going to watch these Showa era films, you watch the first three, and I think this would be the next one in line. It is the next best one on that list. So anyway, that is Gamera vs. Giron. Definitely, I would definitely check that one out, if nothing else, just for the kaiju action. Now we're getting on this, you know, the ball's rolling down the hill. We're getting at a breakneck pace here because we have very little in these movies, and I have very little to say on these movies. But Gamera vs. Jiger. At this time, stories about ancient civilizations were popular in boys' magazines. So... You know, Nissan Takahashi, who, again, was back to write, wanted to cash in on this and started writing a script for Gamera vs. Giant Demon Beast X. This was centered around an ancient creature and added in occult elements around a cursed statue. 
Now, this actually made me really want to watch this movie. Because, man, <laughs> that is a pretty good premise. I love that premise. The problem is what we actually get. It was said that Yuasa convinced the president of Dae to give them an additional 30 million yen for the film's budget. It was released in Japan on March 21st, 1970. The American TV version was titled Gamera vs. Monster X, and this specific version used stock footage from other Gamera films. So, it seems like with that extra budget, what they avoided doing was using stock footage, but the American version uses stock footage anyway. That is what I have. Let's set this one up. So, released in 1970, 83 minutes long, when a giant stone statue on Wester Island is disturbed, the legendary monster Jiger appears and heads for Japan. Gamera tries to stop this new rival, only to be injured when Jiger lays eggs inside him. As two boys in the submarine go on a dangerous quest inside Gamera's body to save him, Jiger threatens the Expo 70 World's Fair in Osaka. Positives. We have, I think it's a very cool angle of Jiger actually laying eggs inside of Gamera, and these boys have to go in and, you know, take care of what is inside Gamera to help Gamera out, because Gamera is really ailing in this movie. That's about all the positives I have, unfortunately. <laughs> I do not like the design of Jiger. I, I just don't. Um, you know, there's some cool, I think he fights decently well, but I think some of the moves might be used from other, you know, creatures in the past. I don't know. I think I think you can still feel the budget on this one. I don't I whoever came up with the Jiger's design, I definitely one of the least favorite, if not the least favorite in the entire series. So that should tell you something there. I think he looks dopey. I think it looks terrible. Again, I think he's got some cool fighting moves and I think the, you know, laying an egg inside of your opponent to weaken them is great. Other than that, that's about all I have to say on this one. I I would put this one even below Viras. I know I think when you're looking at ratings out there, I think this one gets a little bit of a nod above that, but I think the cursed statue and the ancient civilization I think could have been really cool, but I feel like they waste that in this movie, and I don't like it. So that's where I'm coming at. I don't think it's the worst in the series, but it's definitely borderline unless you're a gamma completist avoiding this thing. I don't even think the monster action is that great. Anyway, it's teetering right there between that and Virus of which one's better. Okay, so after uh, Jiger, we got Gamera versus Zigra. And all we know about this one is the budget of this one came in around 35 million yen. And Dae ended up going bankrupt shortly after the movie was finished. This caused the film to be released by Dainichi Ehi, which was a short-lived subsidiary of Daiei and Nikatsu. It was released in Japan on July 17th of 1971. And again, Daiei was already bankrupt at this point, so that wasn't them releasing. The release was actually just one week before Godzilla vs. Hedera released. Maybe not the smartest decision to release that one week before a Godzilla film, but they did, and, I mean, their hands were probably tied on that. Now, with this one, it wasn't part of the deal with American International TV, so with, you know, Daya going bankrupt and everything, so it wouldn't see a U.S. release until 1987 when it made its TV debut in the U.S. This one is 
not good from what I'm recalling of it. It is, you know, another story where we have a group of aliens coming to look to use Earth for their... This time they're looking for the oceans for their underwater people. But, yeah, it's a weird movie. It's not great. Zigra's design is really cool, but I wouldn't recommend the film at all. And I don't really want to spend a whole lot more time on this one either. So now we're at the point where Dai went and filed bankruptcy. They are done as a company officially. But that would not be the end of them as a whole. There was said to be a new Gamera film, actually, that went into production in 1971 after Zigra was done. And it would feature a two-headed monster, but it had to be stopped due to the closing of Dai. That was the last film they were working on. It was another Gamera film, so they clearly had no interest in stopping that. It must have been a pretty decent moneymaker for them to continue doing that right up to their closure. On December 23, 1971, the company filed for bankruptcy after being sued for $1.6 million due to accusations about the company's illegal political donations. So once again, Dye in a negative light in the law standpoint. In the summer of 1974, the company would reform with Yasuyoshi Takuma at the helm. The company operated with four subsidiaries, one for production, one for distribution, and a studio in both Tokyo and Kyoto. They also created Toko Takuma Company to specialize in importing Chinese films into the country and to export their Japanese films into China. Now, what would come of all this? Well, nothing good, really, at least not at first. The next film and last film we're going to be talking about is Gamera Super Monster, and I say talk about lately because I have not seen this one, I will not see this one from all perspectives, it's not a very good movie. So this was made to try and get Dai out of its turbulent financial situation. The movie's pretty much just a big compilation of stock footage, and it's not only using footage from other Gamera films, but also the anime Space Battleship Yamato and Galaxy Express 999. And you can see where that would be very weird as we've got this live-action movie and they're mixing in animated scenes with it. So once again, this movie's a train wreck. Almost all of the Gamera footage was from other films. In fact, I think a third of the entire movie was reported to be from stock footage. They even built in a plot device that allowed Gamera to travel to wherever his enemies were so they could use the footage from the earlier battles and earlier movies. And, you know, first and foremost, I don't think I said it, but the whole reason they did this garbage mess here was to... It's basically because they had a contract to fulfill one more Gamera movie. So this was the result of it, and it wasn't a very good result. After Gamera Super Monster, the company would, you know, make a much smaller amount of movies, basically from when they were acquired in 74 on, actually. Uh, Some of those, and by the way, Gamera Super Monster did release in... 1980, I did not say that earlier. But um, yeah, they would. some of those later era films would include the Gamera Heise trilogy, the movie Pulse, which is a Japanese horror movie, and Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive. Tokuma would pass away on September 20th of 2000, after which the company would be sold to Kotakawa. In November of 2002, it was announced the two companies would merge to form Kotakawa Daiei Film, only to have the Daiei name dropped two years later in 2004. There were rumors surfacing in 2014 of a new Gamera film being in the works, but unfortunately it was revealed later to only be a short proof of concept that never went anywhere. 
So the last Gamera films we would get were those three Heisei films in the 90s and then Gamera the Brave in the mid-aughts. And that would be pretty much it to this day for Gamera. So that about wraps up the history for the Gamera Showa era films and the Daimajin trilogy and Dai film in general. But we're not done quite yet. There is another section for the watch list roulette. This pick came over from the Facebook group, and it was Raul Rivera of the Headlong Into Monsters podcast. So first and foremost, I just want to shout out that podcast and urge you to go check out Raul and Ashley over there. They talk about any number of horror movies and, you know, get deep into some of their favorites. So check that out wherever you get your podcast. And the number Raul gave me was the number seven. I was continuing to work on the newer 2022 films with this one. So I pulled out from my 2022 watch list the movie Blackwood, which is a horror western. So Blackwood, like I said, is a 2022 horror film directed by Chris Canfield. And the synopsis reads, Doan Howie, a Native American woman, evades the notorious Dutch Wilder gang by escaping into the uncharted Blackwood forest. Once inside, they quickly discover they must help each other, for they have unknowingly awoken an ancient ravenous creature known as the Wendigo. So that's not a spoiler. It starts you off at the very beginning and says this movie will be about the Wendigo. So, you know, I was very hyped up to watch this one at first. There are also some very beautiful scenes that it starts with as well. Unfortunately, once you get into it, you soon realize that this is a very low-budget film and the actors aren't necessarily great. I think that's a very, you know, big weakness of this movie. And when you actually do get into the Wendigo-type creature, it's pretty awful. The whole design of it is pretty awful. I don't want to... I know this has happened several times, and there's going to be something coming up that's going to make a change to this segment, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But Blackwood is not a great movie. So this is two in a row that I've talked about that have just been very bad 2022 movies. Shepard was previously my least favorite movie of 2022, uh, as far as horror movies go, and now this one will replace it, so uh, congratulations, Blackwood. But yeah, this is just not a good movie. I don't, I don't want to sit here and belabor the point. I mean, it starts off, I was trying to give it the benefit of the doubt and give it all the chances in the world, and I really did like it for the first 15 minutes or so, and then we start getting into some more heavy exposition and some characters on screen, and it's just not great. Uh, It's not great as a Western, not really great as a horror movie. So for me, Blackwood is a complete avoid and a skip. Just do not waste your time on this one. Uh, Yeah, it's been, it's pretty bad when I've gotten two different topped my worst of 2022 list twice here. So we will move on from Blackwood. Now what I want to do going forward, I have one more pick that came in from the group to do, and I'll do that one in September on one of the episodes. But after that, for October, I want to implement this, or maybe November, I don't know when I'm going to start it. Might skip it with weird things going on in October, but for at least November, the next time you hear this segment will be normal, time after that, I'm going to move to more of a watch list, kind of moving through watch lists just like this, but I'm going to be just picking a year and sticking with it for you know several episodes, trying to get some of these yearly lists put together for myself. 
So if you have a specific year that you'd want to recommend, you can hit me up with that. If not, I'm just going to pick a year that looks manageable in my watch list and try to complete it. One movie at a time per episode. So probably probably once a month. I might do it more often if I watched one in between then and just have something short to say about it. The final thing before I get into plugs here is uh, this is a little crossover with Screaming Ages Plays. I want to do tryouts since I've been going on this kaiju kick. I want to do tryout a game that I've always wanted to try out, and that is War of the Monsters. I think it came out in 2003 by Incognito Entertainment, and it would be exclusively to the PlayStation 2 in North America and Europe. And they did a port of this up to the PlayStation 4, so I was like, you know what, I do want to try it. So I tried it out, and sadly, I was not very not very excited with it. It was really cool at first when you're seeing the opening cutscene and the cool, like, cheesy B-monster movie type stuff, and the characters are really cool as well. But basically what you're doing is just kind of fighting one monster, like a monster at a time. And everything around it is really cool. You get these posters that say, like, you know, whatever monster you're fighting, that's the kind of movie it is. And you go one by one and fight all of these selectable monsters with a monster of your choice. The problem is the gameplay is not very good. It's not very, I mean, it, it feels like a 2003 game and not in a good way. I mean, there are games that play decently from that time. This one, unfortunately, is not one of it. And again, you're just fighting monsters, basically just one monster at a time as you go through the levels, and it just doesn't, the controls are not very good, the camera's terrible, and I didn't want to waste an entire episode on that, so I'm just giving this quick little avoid for that one. I was so excited to get into this one, and everything around it just seems like it would scream, you know, something that I would enjoy, but it's just not great. Yeah, unfortunately, I have to give War of the Monsters a pass. As far as Screaming Ninja plays, I don't know when... I will put out another one of those just because um, haven't been playing a whole lot lately and haven't uh, finished anything lately. So as the need arises, I will put those out and, you know, those will be a very less frequent thing. All right, let's get into the plugs here. First and foremost, I did want to plug the Kaiju battle that is still going on. As we speak, we had a bit of what I think is an upset going on with Titanosaurus taking down Iris from the Gamera Heise trilogy. And then I think just today, Gamora had taken down Zetan, and both of those are from the Ultraman series. We're closing in on the end of the, you know, that second round, the first main round, and there's going to be, you know, repeat matchups now as far as we're going into the winners are moving on to the next round. And so you can head on over to Twitter or the Facebook group and check those out. Also, before I get into my own plugs, I did want to plug the Phantom Video Show, which there should be probably another episode on the way. Uh, That is with, you know, myself, Dave Becker, and Nathan Bartleball. should be another episode on the way soon, probably when this one launches. It should be coming around the same time, so keep an eye out for that. In that episode, you know, there's basically just going over the new releases and picking a new release to talk about and review individually. That's a pretty cool episode, so check that one out when you get a chance. should be out wherever you get your podcast over on the Phantom Galaxy feed. Now, as far as for the podcast, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can jump into Facebook on the Facebook group, which is Screaming Through the Ages. 
We also have a website over at ScreamingThroughTheAges.com where all the episodes are housed. There is an email if you want to send an email, and that address is ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. And if you want to call in and talk about your favorite kaiju or anything about that or anything in the show really to do with horror or anything around horror, you can call in and leave a voicemail at 740-297-6556. With all that being said, we will be back next time to take on the Godzilla Heisei era films and beyond. And yeah, we're just going to treat that one like I did with the Godzilla Showa era one and just kind of go down film by film list some cool facts, talk about the movies, talk about my favorites, and we might talk about some other adjacent stuff to wrap it up. With all that being said, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. (laughs) 